Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watts Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekends of August 5th through the 7th and August 12th through the 14th, 2022. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone is doing well. If you listen to this show on a regular basis, you may have noticed that for the first time ever, I I missed a weekly episode without warning, not even getting a last-minute episode out on Friday. Apologies for that. Uh, there were a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is the usual life and work are busy excuses, but I honestly think also there was just so much news around the whole situation that Warner Brothers, on top of the usual box office news, that I had trouble trying to synthesize it uh, into a script, um, especially given that the situation was changing every day. Um, usually when I go through the box office subreddit to look for headlines to cover. I get maybe like one or two pages of saved links. Uh, Last week, there were five and a half pages worth of links, um, which is just a lot. Um, On top of that, I definitely made a swing and miss with my predictions around Easter Sunday um, and how much it would make on its opening weekend. And, you know, I wanted to do a deep dive into why I thought that was the case, why why I ended up missing so hard. Um, but in order to do that, I would probably need to watch uh, Easter Sunday to better understand the film itself. Um, and I couldn't do that until this past Friday anyway, so couldn't really do that. Um, now, with the release schedule for the box office looking relatively light for major releases for the rest of August and into September, I'm thinking of taking a small break for the rest of the, for the month of for the rest of August and into September. Um, maybe just about a month or so. I'm not definitely going. I'm not. I'm not stopping the podcast for good. Just need to you know recharge, relax a little bit, and given the relative lack of films coming out, I figured now is a good as time as any to do that. That said, in order to make up for that, I'm going to give you a little bit of a longer episode this week, especially going over the last two weeks of box office news, as well as my breakdowns of Warner, the Warner situation in Easter Sunday, plus, you know, the, the films that I've been, uh, see what I've been watching lately. So, uh, strap in, this is going to be a doozy. So on the weekend of August 5th, the top film was Sony's new action film, Bullet Train, starring Brad Pitt in an ensemble cast. Um, it made about $30 million in uh, 4,300 theaters for 6,892 per theater average. That's pretty much in line with expectations going into the weekend, if somewhat unexciting overall. Um, you know, usually you know, there's sometimes a breakout hit of a film uh, in uh, in August in, in past years. Um, this this didn't, didn't end up being that. Um, it held onto the number one spot this past weekend as well, uh, dropping a a somewhat high 55% for 13.4 million and a running total of 54.4 million. Adding into that about 59 million overseas, it's made about 115 million or so worldwide against a budget of 85 million. Now, assuming it made a 2.5x multiplier with a B plus cinema score and mixed reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, 53 critics, 76 audience, and a 50-50 domestic international split, it should make about 75 million domestic, 150 million worldwide. Um, break even looks to be somewhere around the 12, 212. Uh, million range, which would need a 300, 3.5x multiplier domestic to get there. So um, this one's probably going to struggle to break even. Haven't seen it myself yet, though. Given the lack of stuff coming out, I'll probably try to make time to watch it one of these weekends. Uh, the rest of the weekend, um, in the rest of the weekend of the first weekend of August, we had DC's League of Super Pets dropping 52% in the second weekend to 11 million. Nope dropping 54% in its third weekend to 8.5 million. Thor: Love and Thunder dropping 42% uh, in weekend five to 7.7 million. And Minions: Rise of Gru dropping only 35% uh, in weekend six to 7.1 million. Um, Minions: Rise of Gru currently sits in the top 20 all-time of animated films ever worldwide. Um, outside the top five, Top Gun: Maverick, uh, in weekend 11. 
dropped only 16% for 7 million, and World of the Crawdad Singh dropped 25% in week 4 for 5.6 million. And a newcomer Easter Sunday from Sony um, came in about industry expectations and below my own personal hopes for it um, at 5.6 million in 3,164 theaters for 17.16 per theater average at number 8. Again, more on Easter Sunday in a little bit. Uh, beyond that, in a limited release, A24's new slasher film, Bodies, 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 uh, debuted in six theaters to a respectable per theater average of 37.7 thousand. Now, this past weekend, like we noted, Bullet Train did hold the top spot uh, with none of the new releases, mostly smaller engagements, uh, breaking into the top five and only one sneaking into the top ten. Uh, in top five, we had Top Gun Maverick coming back to number two uh, in week 12 doing uh, the crazy, though at this point, I guess, for Top Gun Maverick, uh, crazy is normal. Uh, they actually held flat week over week, actually gaining about $20,000 week over week, uh, making about $7 million again. Uh, so far, the domestic total is $673 million about 5 million away from passing Infinity War for the number 6 spot on the all-time domestic list, having already overtaken Titanic. Uh, overseas, it sits at 1.37 million, about 20 million or so away from overtaking Age of Ultron at number 12. Uh, number three this weekend was uh, DC League of Super Pets, another seven million, about fifty k sort of Top Gun Maverick, um, dropping thirty seven percent from last weekend with a per theater average of eighteen forty two. Uh, domestic total is fifty eight million dollars overseas, fifty one million for one hundred and nine million total. Uh, production budget wise, this one was ninety million dollars or so, but without much competition, animated wise till November, uh, this one should have some sort of legs. Uh, number four went to Thor Love and Thunder, a 30% drop in week six, 5.3 million in 3,175 theaters, for a per theater average of 16.95. Uh, 3.25 million domestic and 3.94 overseas has a 7.20 million total. It's already surpassed Thor Ragnarok's 3.15 million domestic total and the 708 million overseas total, which excludes China, Russia, or Malaysia, which have basically banned this film from showing there. Uh, number five goes to Jordan Peele's Nope to Universal in its fourth weekend, 37% drop in 5.3 million, about 10k difference between this and Thor Love and Thunder in 2760 theaters for 1944 per theater average, currently running at 107.5 million domestic, uh, joining the $100 million club for the year. Now outside of the top 5, we have a bunch of new openings. At number 8, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies expanded wide into 1285 theaters to make 3.2 million for a per theater average of 2350, the second highest of the top 10. And at number 10, Fall from Lionsgate uh, opened to 2.5 million in 1548 theaters for a 1623 per theater average. Um, Indian film Lal Singh Chada, distributed by Paramount, opened the 12th place to 1.4 million in 516 theaters, 2882 per theater average. Uh, there was a 40th release of E.T. at number 13 and making $1 million in 389 theaters, a 27.57 per theater average. Uh, Mac and Rita from Gravitas Ventures made $1 million in 1930 theaters for a low 538 per theater average. And a bunch of stuff making less than a million, uh, particularly shoutouts to Inu O, the new anime film from Japanese director Masaki Yuasa. G-Kids released it in 350 theaters, but sadly only made 190000 for a 543 per theater average. Uh, well Go USA had some decent per theater averages with Korean films Emergency Declaration opening to a per theater average of 2932 and Hansan Rising Dragon in week 3 having a 3428 per theater average. And then the documentary Free Choice Wu Lee from MUBI, uh, had, which did pretty well at Sundance and distributed by MUBI, uh, opened in one theater for a 21,000 per theater average, which is the highest per theater average of the week. And then of course we have Easter Sunday. Uh, 
ending up dropping uh, 56% uh, in week two to 2.4 million in 3,176 theaters, 4.758 per theater average, and a 9.9 million domestic total. I guess now is a good time as ever to talk about it. Uh, so I had made the wild prediction that they could potentially open in the $20 million range and pull off a Crazy Rich Asians for a number of reasons that I won't rehash here. You can listen to the last episode for those. However, as we did note, it opens to only about $5.6 million and is dropping from there pretty steeply. So what's the deal? Well, for one, the reviews weren't particularly kind to it. A critics on Rotten Tomatoes had it about 45% as of recording. That's fairly low compared to comparable films I think it would hold up, I thought it would hold up to. Uh, Free Guy and Good Boys both had 80%, and then Crazy Rich Asians had 91%. Though I also did compare it to Hitman's Bodyguard, which made 43% and opened around the same time. Uh, audience scores were a bit kinder to it at 70% or so, about the same as Hitman's Bodyguard, but again, below the other films I noted. It has the B-plus cinema score, same as Hit Bo- Hitman's Bodyguard, Bodyguard and Good Boys, but below the others. So, you know, obviously the quality is the impacting word of mouth and people not wanting to go see it, but there are other reasons I think this underperformed. Uh, for one, this was a film centered around Easter coming out in August, which may be a bit confusing. Uh, this was originally set to spring, but I think because in the movie, they basically is a whole subplot about uh, Joker's character getting a TV pilot. I suspect that they had pushed back uh, this film to August uh, with the hope that uh, Joker's, uh, he had an ABC pilot earlier this spring, um, that ended up not getting picked up for a full series, but the hope was, I think, that they would be able to get this. Uh, in they would be able to get this. Um, you know. Uh, kind of to release around the same time that you know, news of a new pilot coming out would, would come out, uh, which would kind of boost the marketing for this film, right? And I think uh, that didn't pan out, so I think the marketing uh, push kind of double ba- backfired on them here with that move to push it back. Um, but yeah, I think people who might have gone and see this during Easter Sunday, hey, it's Easter, let's go watch a movie about Easter Sunday, ended up not going to see it. Uh, Secondly, while it does have similar reviews to uh, Hitman's Bodyguard, ultimately, I think this one lacked star power. While within the Filipino community, you know, Jokor, Tia Carrere, Evram Noblezado, Lou Diamond Phillips might be names you recognize and want to go see in a a movie, um, they don't really stack up to Ryan Reynolds or Sam Jackson, uh, with Ryan Reynolds also lending his brand the free guy. Um, Looking at the other films I compared it to, you know, Good Boys, maybe mostly newcomer kids, but it was super closely tied to Seth Rogen's brand name. Uh, which helped, and while uh, since he was the producer, while Spielberg's, you know, technically producing this film, uh, you know, um, the, the connections were kind of tenuous at best in the marketing. And then looking at Crazy Rich Asians, I mean, you have a who's who, right? You have hit heavy hitters like Michelle Yeoh, Constance Wu, off of Fresh Off the Boat, supporting roles from Ken Jeong and Ronnie Cheng for comedic effect, right? So I think you know. Given that the growing economic fears may have family more reluctant to spend on entertainment, which I think also muted Bullet Train's opening within what it could have been, um, led to people with the lack of name talent kind of not giving this one a chance. Um, also to note, right, those other films were the pretty much the biggest films to open their particular weekends, with no real competition from other major studios. So the fact that this one opened against uh, Bullet Train, which was another major studio film, uh, kind of ate into this one's pie, right? I think maybe without Bullet Train, Easter Sunday probably would have done a little bit better and, and made a little bit more money from people wanting to go see a movie. Um, actually, I think this compares pretty fa- pretty much similarly to another film, right? So when Hitman's Bodyguard came out, I believe 2017 or 
so. Another film that opened the same weekend that, that kind of performed similar to uh, Easter Sunday was Logan Lucky, um, a film starring you know Daniel Craig and Channing Tatum. You know, a heist film set in the South around race cars. You know, that opened to only seventy million, seven million against uh, Hitman Bodyguards, about twenty million or so, right? Um, kind of like how here. Um, you know, uh, Easter Sunday opened only the five, five, six million dollars, while uh, Bullet Train made thirty million dollars, right? So kind of like that more action-centric, bigger film uh, kind of overshadowed this with 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 you know brand name kind of overshadowed. Well, not that Channing Tatum and Daniel Craig are nothing, but you know this more speci- culturally specific film, right? You know, the, I think the the culture of driving cars in the South probably limited Logan Lucky's appeal to a wider audience, right? Um, and, you know, it had a B cinema score, which is about, you know, a little bit less of anything uh, than um, Easter Sundays, uh, but it also had much better critics reviews, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. It went on to make 20, $27 million uh, with a 3.6X multiplier, but, yeah, definitely that first weekend, um, it definitely got overshadowed and what it could have been, right? Um, so, you know, while I think this, I, I was perhaps over optimistic about how this would appeal to Filipino Americans. Um, you know, ultimately, I think I do kind of have to face reality that you know Filipinos are, while the biggest group of Asian, uh, one of the larger groups of Asian Americans uh, in the states, um, they are still only a fraction of the fra- of a fraction of the American populace. So something focused on us will have a pretty much natural ceiling, especially with subpar reviews. So what is that ceiling, right? Uh, well, you know, I think. I, I would, given that this one's dropping a bunch week over week, I think it's going to lose a lot of theaters next week or the week after, given it's low per theater average. So that's going to limit it. And then the universal deal with theaters for films opening under 50 million, which this one certainly did, means it'll be in VOD in two weeks or so, maybe even less than a week at this point. So call it maybe 2.5x tops just because of the lack of real competition coming out. But 2.5, maybe 2x. Uh, 2.5x would put it at 12.5 million domestic, which, um, you know, there are no international numbers yet, so we have no idea how it's going to play internationally. Uh, in particular, it opens in the Philippines August 31st when Joe Koy will be in Manila for a comedy tour um, to help promote the film also. So we'll see how it's received over there in particularly. Um, now, the budget for this one was $17 million, so by the 2.5x rule, that would need about $42.5 million to break even. Not a great expect, not likely situation going to happen here. That said, that is still smaller than the entire cost of Bullet Train's production budget. So, you know, a small swing, small uh, small miss, not going to lose too much. And at the end of the day, right, while this may not be a win financially, I think at the very least it's a win, win is win for representation on the big screen, which is a win in my book, right? I'll have more of my thoughts on Easter Sunday at the end of the show and what I've been watching, but yeah, that's kind of my overall thoughts box office-wise for this. Uh, in any case, these past two weekends were some of the worst of the year to date, which is not of the ordinary. August is usually a bit, a bit of a stinker. Um, the weekend of August 5th made $92 million, and then this past weekend made only $65 million. Also, some films that ended their runs, uh, Bob's Burger ended after 10 weeks, $31.9 million. Bad Guys ended at 15 weeks, $96.7 million, just shy of that $100 million domestic mark. Now, since we'll be off for about the next month or so, I think I might as well go over the films that are releasing in the next month. Um, this coming weekend, we have Idris Elba-led the thriller Beast from Universal. Box Office Pros has it at 10 to $15 million. Um, This kind of reminds me of the Has Fallen franchise led by Gerald Butler and uh, and um, Morgan Freeman. Those made about $21 million opening. So, you know, if there's an audience for those kind of films that come out in August, um, maybe this one might overperform a little bit. Um, this coming weekend, there's also the new debut of the new Dragon Ball Super movie, 
self-titled superhero. Uh, box office pros forecast for this is nine to fourteen million dollars. Um, if you recall for talking about how it debuted in Japan, it was okay, not like a, a complete uh, uh, a record breaker. Um, this would be the biggest opening of the franchise domestically, though, uh, with Dragon Ball Super Broly in twenty nineteen opening at nine million dollars. So um, anything above that would kind of be a win for this film. Next weekend on the 26th, there are two films coming out. Uh, the Invitation is a supernatural thriller horror from Sony inspired by Dracula. Um, box office post nails it at 8 to $13 million. And then 3,000 Years of Longing from MGM. Um, not much marketing on this one. I think it didn't do particularly well at Cannes. Um, and I think this is kind of like a pre-existing film that after the acquisition, Amazon kind of probably has a contextual ag agreement with George Miller, the director, to get out. Um, but George Miller directed this genie film starring Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. Um, Pretty weird looking film, no forecast on this one, so it could be a total wild card. Uh, the last film that Ma that George Miller did was Mad Max Fury Road in 2015, which I don't think is really comparable to this. It could go as high as that one, which made like $40 million, or more likely it'll make less than that. Happy Feet 2, you know, another George Miller film, made $21 million in 2011, but I'll probably be a little bit less than that even. Uh, moving into September over Labor Day weekend, we have the Focus Features film uh, Hank Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, which is a film about a disgraced pastor trying to make a comeback. And then the Spider-Man No Way Home, the more fun stuff version re-release. No forecast for either of these yet. Uh, September 9th, the main release will be the horror film Barbarian out of 20th Century Studios. Box Office Pros has it at 9 to $14 million. And then September 16th, the main releases are biographical drama The Silent Twins from Focus Features, uh, which screen at Cannes, as well as the first of what I consider the award season films The Woman King from Sony Pictures starring Viola Davis. Uh, Clerks 3 is also making an appearance 12 years after Clerks 2. Um, apparently, actually, this one was only going to open over two days in the middle of the week, but due to the demand for the screen, they ended up getting a full weekend release from Lionsgate in about 700 theaters, though I believe they're doing only one screening uh, a day at 7 p.m. in those theaters. I shall be back in that the week after the 16th uh, to go over what we've missed uh, over the past month, if anything, and also look forward at what the last third of the year of movies will end up being. Though I may also might come back a week earlier, depending on the news that comes out of D23 on the 9th. Looking overseas, the biggest news of the last couple of weekends was the opening of the One Piece film Red, um, the latest movie of the wildly popular One Piece franchise. It opened to 22.25 billion yen, or about 16.7 million US, over the weekend, the highest of the franchise in local currency. Um, though exchange rates being where they are, um, you know, while it is you know nearly double the amount of the uh, previous highest grossing uh, film in the franchise, 2012's One Piece Z, um, the USD ends being pretty similar. Um, it is second only behind Demon Slayer Mugen Train for all-time local opening. Uh, Demon Slayer opened to 3.3 billion yen, and it's the highest opening of an August film ever, overdoubling the massive hit Your Name from Makoto Shinkai, which opened uh, several years ago. It also got the second highest opening day ever, uh, with over a billion yen to its name. Uh, looking at the worst legs of the f of the One Piece films, right? This is one of those franchises that has a movie, uh, if not every year, at least every couple of years, right? Um, so you know, it's to make at least 10 billion yen minimum, or about 74 million US dollars, with a bit of potential of an upside. People are saying maybe 110 million US or so, or about 15 billion yen at current exchange rates, um, good for the top 15 all-time domestically. I'm looking forward to the US release for this, though we don't yet have an exact date yet, but it should be coming out sometime this fall. 
Uh, over in Korea, Lee Jung-jae, star of Squid Game, has his directorial debut film Hunt, uh, hitting 2 million admissions in a week, has been the number one film every day since its release on August 10th. It got picked up for the US release by Magnolia Pictures, so it'll be coming sometime later this December. Uh, also, an international story. Don't have the numbers for this one, but I wanted to cover this one. Uh, in the Philippines, uh, again, I'm Filipino-American, uh, two politically opposed films released against each other August 3rd. Uh, for context, recently in the Philippines, um, you know, uh, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., son of the former dictator Ferdinand Marcos, who imposed martial law in the 70s and 80s, uh, recently was elected president, right? Um, this was largely off of the back of a successful historical revisionist uh propaganda campaign on social media that sought to paint the Marcos regime as honestly not that bad. Um, don't fall for it. Um, if you want more information about this, check out the John Oliver Last Week Tonight segment about it. Um, but in any case, in line with that campaign, a film released called Made in Malankanyang. Uh, Malankanyang is the Filip- is the equivalent of the Philippine White House, the presidential palace. Um, it's produced by Senator Ime Marcos, who, of course, is the younger, pres- younger sister of the president um, and is directed by alleged pedophile uh, Daryl Yap. Um, it recounts the last 72 hours of the Marcoses in Malankanyang before they had to flee the country as a result of the populist people power movement uh, that overthrew their regime and led to the installation of the democratically elected opposition candidate Corazon Aquino. Uh, controversially, in the film, among other things, uh, Corey Aquino is depicted, depicted playing Mahjong uh, with nuns who were sheltering her during the uprising. Um, this particular group of nuns, the Carmelite Sisters in Cebu, uh, came out against the film saying that they had never been reached out uh, uh, for you know context for research on the film and they were kind of displayed historically inaccurately here um, now unfortunately Philippine box office numbers are not the best reported um, with most n- numbers coming from um, no, there's no systematic way that they're getting collected most numbers are reported by production companies uh, in local social media posts um, as of last Thursday it looks like made in Melkanyang made about 206 million Philippine pesos or about 3.6 million US um, not the biggest film but you know within Still, 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 still notable. Uh, reportedly, it looks like though theater buyouts were sponsored by government uh, government offices at the local level, as well as uh, business, uh, you know, business districts and, and the school districts. Unfortunately, going in line with that uh, historical revisionist propaganda we've seen and propping up these numbers, kind of a similar vein of how. Um, of how uh, Battle of Lake Changjin uh, had you know, free tickets given to citizens in China to boost its numbers. Um, now, opposite all this, uh, there was a film Katips, uh, sort for Katipunan, which are the, uh, the name for the freedom fighters of the Philippines, um, which depicted the early days of the martial law era was re-released. Uh, Katips had, been, had debuted in late 2021, an ultimately recently went on to win seven out of the 17 nominations it received for the Filipino equivalent of the Oscars, including Best Picture. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the actual box office numbers for Katips online, but I thought it was an interesting story kind of seeing how these two films were going up against each other at the box office as it relates to the question of national identity and how films kind of reflect that. Uh, in any case, moving over to China, I won't go into details for both weekends, but it looks like local film Moon Man is a bona fide hit, uh, grossing 359 million US to date. It also looks like the recent Hollywood films are off the charts for the time being, with Lost City and Jurassic, Tr- 10, uh, Jurassic World dropping out of the top 10. That said, this coming weekend, uh, August 19th, uh, Minions Rise of Gru will be getting uh, its China release this coming weekend, uh, probably because uh, one of the investors in Universal is a Chinese company. Now, there are a bunch of headlines beyond the numbers, but of course, we got to first recap the fallout from everything happening with the Batgirl cancellations over at Warner Brothers and what it means for the future of both Warner and the streaming industry.
Now, I'm not going to do a super deep dive into here. That would fill an episode in and of itself. Uh, in fact, Dan Mural from over with Charts on Dan on YouTube did just that and putting together an excellent 30-minute episode detailing everything with the background, context, and latest developments as of when that when he put up that episode about 10, 12 days, about 10 days ago at this point. Um, I strongly recommend you do go check out for all the details. Um, so any, in any case, last episode, we had just left off before the DC's earning call where they provided a little bit more context for all of what was going on, why they decided to close to, to stutter um, both uh, Batgirl and the Scoop sequel. Um, the main reason seems to be of, that they officially gave was they wanted to focus on theatrical releases and didn't think these films were up to snuff theatrically. Now, whether or not that, that's true, right, there reports that, you know, in screenings with test audiences, it test, Batgirl tested about the same as Black Adam did before that one did resuits. Um, I think the real reason is that they wanted to take a tax write down on this, right? Um, again, the prerogative from David Zaslav is to find about $3 billion in cuts um, and he's been going over pretty much all the projects with a fine tooth comb um, this hasn't really come up on this podcast so much but um, as Dan noted you know Warner owns a bunch of subsidiaries TNT TBS and a bunch of those projects have been cancelled in addition the various uh, HBO Max exclusive films and series on HBO Max um, such as you know most recently Moonshot um, ended up getting pulled from the platform and it looks like the reason for those would be um, because they recently just acquired the company they could technically take a tax write off on things that they ended up uh, removing for whatever reason. So I think that's the case there. Um, reportedly, this quarter, they are taking an $825 million tax write-off, which would be pretty significant. Um, that does not include Batgirl or Scoob, um, and those write-offs will probably happen next quarter. Uh, notably, this does mean that uh, for the purpose, since they're taking a tax write-off, there is no way that they can ever uh, get this film released uh, and and profit off of it. Um, so unless they want the IRS to come knocking on their doors, uh, we're never going to see these films, even though they are mostly done. Um, that's like about a fourth of the way, it looks like, of the way through the th $3 billion in cost savings that is looking for. Um, fun fact, or maybe not so fun fact, it looks like be like the new when the news of this broke basically right before Scoob was going into uh, the studio to record um, you know the orchestra, the, the score for this for the film, um, because they already had paid for the space and the time of the musicians, and they couldn't get a refund on those. Um, they just went ahead and recorded the score for the film, which we're never going to hear. So. Um, also notably, you know, also with restructuring, uh, there are there was news this past Monday that about 70 persistence, 14% uh, of the development side of HBO Max uh, were cut. Um, you know, there was, uh, you know, speculation that HBO Max would kind of be merged into into Discovery and they would basically no longer do HBO Max uh, scripted content. Whether or not that's to be seen, I think we'll have to see how that all pans out. I wouldn't be surprised um, given that Zaslav did confirm they want to combine the two together sometime next year. Um, and, you know, given that Zaslav made most of his money off of uh, scripted, op, uh, unscripted content such as Honey Boo Boo, um, you know, that kind of makes sense that they go after that. That being said, you know, on the theatrical side of things and DC specifically, um, Zaslav did comment that he wanted to develop a 10-year plan uh, for DC, kind of in the same way that Kevin Feige has been leading Marvel for 10 years. They also want to hire somebody for that. Uh, with a focus on the big three, Superman, Batman, and the Wonder Woman, and I'm guessing Aquaman as well, given his success. Um, and they have DC is now its own studio within Warner Brothers Discover instead of kind of rolling up within that. Uh, notably, it looks like they may be walking back the 45-day theatrical window, which, you know, if, while, you know, there are people who are upset at Zasla for, you know, the streaming stuff, if you're into theatrical windows, I think um, this news probably, uh, you're not that upset about that. You know, the 45, if, I think this makes sense given that, you know, David Zaslav comes from a history of, uh, you know, extract, like he was relatively slow with Discovery to get their streaming platform up. 
Um, he's kind of known and has a history of you know getting content, uh, basically making as making as much money from the content at all stages, right? Release and then into um, the different you know distribution periods before putting it on streaming. I think he's going to extend. That makes sense. He wants to extend the theatrical window, and I'm guessing for smaller projects, maybe you know have a sort of window for it on a case by case basis. But, you know, talking about DC, of course, the Ezra Miller problem is a sticky one. Uh, Zaslav did indicate that they are still all systems go for having uh, the Flash come out next year. But, you know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, given the headlines around Miller's activity uh, with the law in recent days, um, it looks like there were, there were basically three options, right? The first option, have Miller issue an apology, say that they're going to rehab, rehab therapy, do a PR tour to make it palatable to have Miller on the press tour for the film. Uh, two, uh, have the press tour for the film, but just don't include Miller. Um, you know, and C, just cancel the film. Right? They already did it with a, with a ninety million dollar film in Batgirl. What's three hundred million dollar film for the Flash? Um, obviously, I think going to HBO Max is not a, is not something that they want to do, given uh, Zaslav's stance on that. Um, and you know, I, I think based on the recent announcement, like there's a recent apology issued by Miller um, for you know his mental health for their mental health issues. Um, you know, it looks like uh, Warner Brothers is trying to do the PR route with the first one. Um, I think this makes sense, right? Because you know the fact that this film is kind of central to their. Uh, efforts to kind of re soft reboot the universe, I think, makes sense. Um, and you know, three hundred million is essentially an order of magnitude more than ninety million dollars. Now, no clue if this is going to work, right? Will Miller stick with the rehab plan and not cause any fuss between now and next summer? I mean, that's basically a year away, so. A lot can happen between now and then. Not to mention, there are people like myself who basically are not, not going to see the film at this point because we're kind of fed up with all the news, right? I would say, you know, until we hear otherwise, I probably expect the Flash to come out, right? I would expect Miller to be front and center of the uh, marketing. I would expect him, them to be honestly out of the MCU, uh, the DCEU at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think, and and of course, if Miller does something crazy between now and then that could completely undo all of this. So who knows? We'll just have to keep an eye on it. Uh, but that brings me to the larger point of all of this, right? The question is, what is WB's relationship with talent in the industry now, right? We saw in 2020 that Jason Keeler pissed off the industry when he basically uh, put everything day and date on HBO Max. And this is basically, a f you know, not even a 180. He's doing a 360 and then another 180, right? So call it what? Uh, like a 420, 48, I don't, I don't know what the number, five, 540, right? Um, to basically, you know, extra turn away from this, right? Um, you know, Keylor pushed away Chris Nolan to Universal, and a lot of people were unhappy and had to pay a lot of money, right? And, you know, frankly, I mean, to, to Keylor's credit, even though maybe financially it was the right thing, maybe it was the right thing to do in the middle of the pandemic, it would, probably wouldn't be the strategy post-pandemic uh, when people are going back to theaters now, right? We've seen that with Top Gun and so on. Um, and, you know, the, also to Keeler's credit, his efforts basically made HBO Max one of the top, you know, rated streaming platforms in the industry, right? People are saying that, hey, like, you know, HBO Max has the one of the best values for, for content out there. It has a lot of cool stuff. Um, Zaslav being... I wouldn't say anti-streaming, but definitely less enthusiastic about streaming than than Wall Street might seem to be. Um, it, he's very much pro. He's very much anti-day and date. He's very much you know uh, get as much money out of a pro project before putting it on streaming. Um, Right, uh, and, and, and or if you want to put it on streaming, get value out of the streaming dollars, which probably would mean increasing the price of HBO Max. I mean, right? Like, I think the fact, like, 
on some hand, if you like theatrical releases, that's fine. But I think the main problem is that uh, this takes the confidence of creatives to work with WB long term, right? Bad Girl and Scoop. You know, first you have you know you have the killer situation, and then, oh, Saslav, will he come in and make it better? Looks like not, because if, if you can cancel Bad Girl and Scoop when the film are basically done at this point, I mean, why would someone work with them if you know you if if you if you know, why was the time, the effort, the money, and the heartache uh, for putting your efforts into a project that'll just get canceled at the la- like right before the finish line? You know, apparently in the internal meeting Warner Brothers had with their employees, um, you know, they said that this would be a one-time thing only for these films, but not fully convinced that's the case, right? Overall, I think this feels like a bit of Zaslav overcorrecting for what whatever Keeler did, um, and overcorrecting to the point, and yes, focusing on uh, theatrical, but overcorrecting to the point where it sucks out smaller projects, right? That probably have a good place reason to exist especially on streaming but don't have a place otherwise right um and you know i again i think this is basically a situation of oh do this wait but not like that right in terms of oh don't like step back to the day and date stuff you know respect talent community but overcompensating to the point where you're no longer respecting right too much of a good thing almost so um, in any case, also tangentially to Warner Brothers, I might as well mention they also have a deal with MGM uh, where they are going to start distributing their films overseas. Uh, speaking of uh, streaming services, uh, Disney also had some news about theirs. Uh, first, they recently had 152 paid subscribers of the Disney Plus, helped by launching in a number of new regions, beating revenue projections, um, including uh, the other streaming services, Hulu and ESPN, um, Disney Hotstar overseas. They are now at 221.1 million total subscribers across all platforms. Notably, they are now the number one streaming company in the world, beating out Netflix, who has 220.7 million subscribers as of the same quarter, uh, due to losing some. Um, so you could say there was a new, uh, the crown of uh, streaming now sits on the mouse's head. Uh, secondly, Disney did also announce that there will be a new tier of Disney Plus uh, coming this winter, um, as well as the price raise, right? Uh, the current ad-free version will become $10.99 per month, up from $7.99, and will be called Disney Plus Premium. Uh, to contrast that, um, you know, the current $7.99 price tier will still exist, but for ad-supported, uh, ad-supported versions. So we'll see how that affects things overall. Um, and then finally, on the uh, weekend of August 5th, uh, Disney released the, the Predator sequel Prey on Hulu to massive positive reviews. Mine among them, I'll talk about it later this bit. Uh, no official numbers from them, but they did say it was the highest opening, the best performing movie to date on the platform. And now, some may be wondering why this didn't get a theatrical release if it was so well received. Um, I think the answer lies in the deal between Warner and 20th Century that predates the Disney acquisition um, that actually will end in December this year. Uh, basically, if a film releases in theaters in the U.S., it will be... So, uh, uh, from 20th Century, it'll end up showing on HBO Max, um, but if it, but otherwise they can put it direct on Hulu. Um, so obviously, I you know, the, well as much as I would have loved to see this in theaters, um, the fact that it ended up, uh, you know, it, it would have been subject to that deal makes sense of why they sent it to Hulu. Um, again, I'd love to see more of these kind of films in the future. Um, honestly, I think it could have outdone Bullet Train if it had released this past weekend. Um, but yeah, so hopefully with that distribution deal, um, we can get some more theatrical releases out of 20th Century. Anyway, there's a couple of other industry news items. You know, Netflix owes $42 million to writers for residuals. Paramount lost $1.8 billion this year, has 64 million subs on Paramount+. Plus. AMC Network's service grew to 10.8 million subs. AMC, the theater company, had narrower losses than expected, and revenue grew to over a billion, and Neon is considering a sale or maybe some equity, um, and Universal hit $3 billion globally uh, for the year off of the backs of Minions and Jurassic World, the first studio to do so since the pandemic. So, you know, some other individual business stuff, but I think the last thing I want to talk about before what I've been watching uh, are some movie date announcements. 
Uh, so Top Gun Maverick is still in theaters and killing it, uh, as we noted, but it looks like it'll finally be coming to digital about August 23rd or so. So that's what? Uh, it came out, uh, I guess, I guess I think it came out like around uh, Memorial Day weekend to the end of May. So call this like what? Five months, right? On 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 uh, digital, right? That's a pretty long theatrical window, and then coming out November first or basically end of October, right? That's basically like six, seven months at this, six or seven months at this point. Um, in in for for home media where you get the physical uh, Blu-ray DVD release. So you know, Top Gun definitely uh, killing it there. Um, 20th Century is moving the David O. Russell film Amsterdam up from November 4th to October 7th, likely to try to fill in the gap in films until Black Panther 2 uh, comes out November 11th. Um, I honestly could also see Black Panther 2 moving up uh, to that October to that November 4th date to try to get a little bit more space from Avatar. Uh, moving to next year, uh, Seth Rogen's uh, animated te- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle film, Mutant Mayhem, is set to come out uh, August 4th, 2023. Uh, we also have a new Saw film coming from Lionsgate, H- Halloween 2023. And then jumping to 2024, DreamWorks announced a sequel to Kung Fu Panda 4, which was I was not expecting, uh, coming March 8th, 2024. Uh, the new Joker film, Forly Adieu, with uh, Harley Quinn, played by Lady Gaga, reportedly for $10 million, uh, Todd Phillips and, and Joaquin Phoenix both making $20 million, um, that one is set for an October 4th, 2024 release date. And then uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 3 is set for de- December 20th, 2024 release date as well. And then for some stuff that don't have dates but have confirmed production, it looks like Patton Oswalt, who played the troll, the Pip, Pip the Troll in the Eternals post credit scene, uh, accidentally confirmed on TikTok uh, that they are developing Eternals 2 uh, with Marvel with Chloe Zhao still attached. Um, no official announcement on that yet, though that may come D23. Uh, and then to go back to DC, there are rumors they are considering moving Suzanne 2 and Aquaman 2 back again. No confirmation yet of that, so TBD. And then finally, not uh, directly a movie, but movie adjacent, it looks like the Golden Globes will be back on NBC after taking last year off due to controversy regarding allegations of racism and corruption. Uh, no confirmation on the exact date yet, but it looks like they are aiming for the uh, for an odd date of a Tuesday, January 10th uh, ceremony, so as not to conflict with NFL Sunday Night on the uh, Sunday Night Football on the 8th or the Critics' Choice Awards on the 15th. Uh, side note, if you haven't already, check out my other podcast, the Oscars Death Race podcast. Uh, during this award season off-season, I am doing a Best Picture Marathon where I'm trying to watch all of the Best Picture winners throughout history, and this month I just put out an episode about the 1950 and 1960 Best Picture winners All About Eve and The Apartment uh, considered some of the best Best Picture winners ever, so check that out. Uh, in any case, before we wrap up this long episode and head into a month-long break, let's go over what I've been watching. Uh, so Easter Sunday, like I've spoken a lot about it already, it's lack of a box office draw due to not having star power. Obviously, aside from that, you can't help but compare it to Crazy Rich Asians in the regard that they're both films about an Asian-American community, uh, kind of on screen for the first time in a long time. And I think doing so shows its relative weakness, particularly in the screenplay, right? Uh, Crazy Rich Asians isn't a comedy. It's a rom-com, but it's not like heavy on the on the, on the the comedy elements so much. Um, it does a, still does a decent job of setting up jokes before delivering punchlines, right? And particularly as a narrative, it does a lot better job of you know, setting up plot points, following through with plot points, and then having a satisfying conclusion at the end, kind of basic stuff, while also providing decent char- like d- character development throughout, including the side characters. Um, meanwhile, Easter Sunday has kind of haphazard in both directions, right? So, one, the setup of jokes aren't really well-developed, which makes the punchlines not hit as well. There is one exception to this, but I'll kind of 
touch that in a second. Um, for example, there's a whole bit with Tiffany Haddish where, you know, oh, you, you, I, I caught you that one time with Molly from volleyball, right? And that just kind of comes out of nowhere, right? There's like really no setup for that and they don't really follow the joke anywhere else. So it's just kind of like to joke in this one isolated scene that doesn't relate to the larger thing. So it just kind of like lacks that craftsmanship, right? Um, you know, and then plot wise, right? Like things don't really develop a satisfying conclusion, right? Like, you know, I, like, 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 you know, Character-wise, right, like the side, the side characters. If you know your, if you're Filipino, you've seen those, uh, seen these these archetypes before in your own family. You, you kind of, kind of find it kind of funny. If you haven't, then you don't. Then that, then you know, you don't really get an explicit introduction to these side characters, and it's kind of hard to like really relate to them, right? Um, right, and then you know, there's a lot of like dangling threads that kind of like get get left hanging. Like, like what happens to their hype truck at the end? Does Junior end up fixing his grades? Right, there's a throwaway line early on from Emma Nobuzada's character that she needs to choose between going to UCLA or Berkeley, which they never follow up on, which would have been a great opportunity to like, oh, does she go with Junior to like be in LA and, and spread her wings, or does she stay in the Bay Area with her family? Right, like that would have been a really awesome character development growth, which there's not much character development there, right? Um, and then you know, I think I mean like the and then and then like you know it's kind of like even the jokes kind of like have a poor payoff right like there's this santo nino joke about like oh santo nino will save you and okay he saves him by like giving ten thousand dollars which kind of ultimately ends up being nothing in the in the grand scheme of things at the end so like well yeah yeah the, the jokes were set up the the payoffs were kind of weak and you know a lot of incoming and outgoing threads that kind of like were not tied up unfortunately now you know i think the exception to the whole setup situation is that if you're filipino-american um, and if you've had family experiences with you know, with family members who are similar to those that you see on the screen, you will kind you're kind of already pre prepped for the joke, right? Like I know the context of this punchline ahead of time, so I personally and my wife also found it funny because we've seen these thing, interactions before and we find them find humor in them. Uh, if you're not Filipino American, you're not gonna really get that setup, and you're gonna be like, okay, what's going on here? Wait, what's this joke? So um, yeah, and then. I think also some of the jokes about Filipino nests just kind of were very surface levels of, oh, we love karaoke, we love food, we're, we're really Catholic, uh, we're really obsessed with Manny Pacquiao, which is like five or more years out of date at this point, right? Um, and then on top of that, totally, there's just so much whiplash with this film. They didn't really know what they wanted to be, right? Was it an exploration of Jokoi's frustrations uh, being an Asian American in Hollywood and he's being typecast for his accent? Is it an exploration of his relationship with his mom and how does that mirror his relationship with his son? Um, um, was it a wacky family comedy with all these classic personalities? Is it a weird, bizarre crime hijinks film uh, of being thrown into a situation crazier than you expect? It's hard to do all of these different plot points uh, in a 90-minute film and just couldn't develop them out, right? And it's a shame because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of harsh on this film at this point um, because I think there are real nuggets of heart here, right? Real nuggets of that that I really enjoyed, right? Joe Corey laments that, like, you know, he says, like, I'm funny without the accent, man. Why do I need to do the accent? And that, you can sense, like, he's probably come up with a situation in Hollywood where he's being typecast for having an accent, right? Um, he has an interaction with Lou Diamond Phillips about being in show business and make sure you remember who you are. Evan Oblizada's character has a comment about how Filipino families are really kind of messy and we fight a lot, but we also love a lot. That really hits home for me. And then there's this insecurity of Jokori's mom worrying if she was a good mom because she pushed him too hard as a kid. And does that mean that he doesn't love her anymore? And he's and that's why she has to keep nagging him to come home for the holidays because you know he's in LA away from Bay Area. He doesn't come back because he's not a good mom. And then Jokori comes and says, oh no, you actually were a great mom. Like You pushed me and it hurt and it was hard, but it made me who I am. I'm thankful for that and I always will love you for that, right? And that kind of like heart and that complex family dynamic, right? Like, 
yeah, it's really messy. It's really messy when on sentence. Um, but that's honestly the dynamic of being Filipino-American, honestly kind of like immigrant-American. Um, and you can tell that that part of the script, that, those delivery from those characters were so genuine and, and sincere from those lived experiences. And Sir, it's hard to wrap that up in a 90-minute movie. It would take a really excellent writing to do this, but it could be done. Unfortunately, you know, uh, Crazy Rich Asians was written by Adele Lim, and it was while it was her first her first film screenplay, she had 15 years of experience, writing experience for TV prior. Uh, meanwhile, Easter Sunday was written by a British-born Chinese poker player and comedian who, to my knowledge, doesn't have much other screenplay experience, and it unfortunately kind of shows. Again, it's a shame because there's so much opportunity here to showcase one of these stories, and they were really ambitious, and they couldn't pull off any of them, right? Like, I was talking to my dad about this over this weekend after I saw it, and he's like, you know, it's a wasted opportunity to, like, really, you know, hope maybe Hollywood won't give another chance to Filipino Americans like this. Hopefully that's not the case, um, you know. But, yeah, I mean, objectively, this is, like, a two out of five star film. Um, I ended up giving it three out of five stars because of one representation and two, the heart. So, yeah, uh, that's kind of my thoughts on Easter Sunday overall. I uh, wanted a lot more from it, and it wanted a lot more from itself, but just couldn't deliver. Anyway, moving to Prey, I had watched this on Friday before going to Philadelphia. I gotta say, like most people, I had a really good time with this. Though, if you or your family are a bit sensitive to violence to animals like my wife is, uh, perhaps pass on this once he got super stressed uh, worrying about the dog. Um, the dog does not die, don't worry. Um, but in any case, I think this was a return to form for the franchise, right? The first film succeeded for a lot of reasons, but I think part of it was that it was somewhat of a horror film um, mass in that, in that action sequence, right? Like, you don't, it's a foe that you don't really see or really understand, and wrecking havoc and you're outgunned and you're, so your protagonist has to use their smarts, right? Not just their brawn, but their smarts to really figure out a way to outgun them, right? And, you know, the sequels, um, well, not even outgun, but just to survive. And the sequels, while once the cat was out of the bag as to who the predators were, right, lost some of the horse stalking bits and went to more action-y sequences, which nothing wrong with those. It just kind of like lost some of the core of the original film. Um, and while there are amazing action sequences in here, in particular, there's this one sequence around the campfire that's like an amazing one-shot sequence. And then whenever the Native Americans are fighting the Predator, that is the Comanche Warriors, those are amazing sequences as well. But I mean, you know, the action sequences aside, I really love the way the main character uses her brain and observation to really figure out the weaknesses of and rules of engagement with this young Predator and formulates a plan using her environment, which she interacted with earlier in the film, great, great screenplay writing there, um, um, to really, to real, was just really satisfying, right? Um, and it also plays into her character development, like what does she want and her motivations as a character. Um, plus, you know, we have beautiful shots of nature, a haunting soundtrack, just adding to the atmosphere. Like others, I'd love to see other Predator films done in this style, Predators in Samurai Japan, Predators during World War II when enemy forces are forced to work together, something like that. Uh, overall, give this one a 4 out of 5. And then finally, Inuo. So I watched this one last this past Saturday, and uh, Masaki Yuasa is a very unique director, both visually and conceptually. You know, I gotta admit, I was kind of tired from Aaron's and he the heat at the start of the film, so the super comfy recliner chairs made me kind of doze off. Um, however, when this film got into the rock, rock concert sequence performances, um, melding traditional instruments with a 60s rock style and stunning visuals on screen, I was... 
I was jolted wide awake, and, and it was all honestly worth seeing on the big screen. I gotta say, I think the setup of this story perhaps relies a little bit too much on the audience understanding some Japanese history, cultural context, particularly about the story of the Heiki um, and Japanese unification, which is kind of like the one of the modern, the classic uh, classic epics of Jap- Japanese history. But maybe I dozed through that section, so what do I know? By the end of the day, the story is about the importance of storytelling and creativity and, and expressing oneself and having an identity, much in line with his previous works done in a beautiful visual and auditory style that soundtrack is just amazing i gotta find it overall i give this one a four out of five and with that i think that's a wrap for this episode uh super ideas for what i should cover via email at box office watch podcast at gmail.com over on twitter at bo watts podcast you can find us on spotify itunes and google play make sure you subscribe and leave a review or at the very least tell a friend any of that helps uh numbers you can do so come from dnumbers.com or intro and outro music come from kevin macleod you can find his stuff at the contact of editing production by ninja boy media until next time this has been the box office watch and remember our watch goes on catch in the month Thank you.